removing factor by factor happens in ordinary life, in ordinary person's mind. When you attain jhanas, you suppress it for a long period of time. Then you completely remove them by practicing vipassana meditation. Not for a short period, but long period of vipassana meditation training will enable the mind to get rid of these things forever, never to return them again, destroy them completely, burn the root. Uh, that is when you attain the uh, you know, stream entry, uh, once return, uh, never return, uh, and arantship. When you attain these stages, four stages, you destroy them completely, never to return them again. Then, there is another way of removing psychic irritants, that is called patipasaddhi. Patipasaddhi means tranquilizing the mind. Not tranquilizing by artificial means, by chemicals, but even after the attainment of liberation, there will be certain idiosyncrasies. These are called kilesa vasana in Pali. Kilesa vasana. These idiosyncrasies become sort of a habitual practice. I think you know, uh, we have uh, mentioned uh, in the past, we, we, we told some stories about uh, uh, even Arahans who had uh, idiosyncrasies after attainment, even after attainment of enlightenment. They used to continue to have their habit, habits uh, in previous, pre, uh, the, the previous habits, such as uh, behaving like monkeys and uh, using uh, unacceptable language and uh, talking uh, unnecessary things and so forth, uh, they, they still have. And those habits will disappear by practicing, especially after the attaining, they especially spend a long period of time in, uh, uh, in meditation now there are defilements, all are gone, but the habits are there to calm the mind, uh, tranquil the mind uh, more, to make it perfectly peaceful, uh, they practice, they continue meditation. That is called patipasaddhi, pahana. And then the last kind of abandoning distractions is called Nisarana. Nisarana means abandoning uh, by the uh, attainment of Nibbana, attainment of enlightenment. What is called Parinibbana. Now, that is the perfect last stage of. Uh, cleansing the mind and making it 100% pure and clean without having any idiosyn even idiosyncrasies. So, 
the meditator must, from the very beginning, must remember the goal of meditation, the purpose of meditation. The purpose is to reach that highest goal. Of course, along the way, there are various other, what you call, fringe benefits. Feeling peaceful occasionally, you know, feeling happy occasionally, and, uh, you know, becoming relaxed and uh, and so forth, and having very uh, beautiful, um, peaceful uh, uh, moments, uh, and so forth. All these are uh, happening on the way. But these things should not be, of course, um, overlooked. Uh, and but and also should not be uh, taken as the final attainment. So we have to look for uh, the what do you call red herrings in meditation. You know red herrings; they are used to deceive dogs. Uh, because the smell is so strong, the dog can be deceived. Uh, Similarly, even in meditation, uh, we have to look for those, uh, uh, what you call, deceptive moments, deceptive experiences, deceptive uh, gains. And don't worry, about uh, uh, what do you call this uh, uh, miraculous attainments, miraculous powers, and uh, being able to read others' thoughts and uh, you know astral traveling and all these things. Don't look for them. These can be uh, red herrings. These can be what do you call vanchanika uh, dhammas that can deceive meditators. What you have to look for is the particular state of mind, how you get rid of certain psychic irritants. Cleanse the mind. Don't get deceptive. So, when the mind is clean, all these are possible. All these uh, supernatural things are possible. Therefore, before looking for those supernatural things, try to be natural. Try to look into real stuff in our mind. Uh, so when we understand the truth of the, the especially for noble truth, then we begin to see the, uh, the, the real path uh, developing in our mind. When we meditate, our, you always have to remember that we have to pay attention. Uh, we have to develop our mindfulness. We have to develop our concentration. We have to develop our equanimity. These four factors <coughs> have to be developed uh, in tranquility meditation as well as inside meditation. Cultivate your 
attention, sharpen your attention, pay attention always to your experiences, and then develop your mindfulness and try to gain concentration, use concentration to develop your mindfulness deeper, and try to have equanimous, unbiased state of mind, to look at your experiences without without, uh, uh, making, uh, falling into one uh, spectrum or the other, uh, just try to stay in the balanced state of mind. And then cleansing the mind becomes very easy. So, uh, such a person, Buddha said, Sutava Putujjano, Sutava To Putujjanasa Chitta Bhavana Atti. The one who knows this method, mindfulness meditation or meditation of cultivating the mind uh, is possible. Otherwise, we can get get lost in the jungle. I think this may be uh, enough for Dhamma talk, and uh, this evening perhaps you may ask questions. Then we can uh, we can spend some time. <coughs> Not the time your your mind is uh, uh, training to be to gain jhanas. In the second mindfulness of the dhamma, you are striving to gain jhanas. At that time, you will have to look at the hindrances in these four stages. First, you see it inside within yourself. Then you work out something to get rid of it, it disappears. Then, uh, when it uh, uh, reappears, you deal with it again, and then it disappears. When it disappears second time, you know that disappeared hindrance does not come back to you again. So make sure that your way is clear, hindrance is gone, or so you will proceed with the practice of gaining jhana. That is the difference. Similarly, when hatred that uh, uh, is within yourself, you just recognize the existence of hatred. And then you deal with it, do something about it, try to get rid of hatred, thinking of various other things. Uh, like uh, analyzing the uh, state of hatred, that's one. Second is feeling the impact of hatred within yourself, that is number two. When you feel the impact of hatred on you, you you really feel how you feel when hatred is there. That is the impact. You feel the palpitation, you feel the very un- unpleasant, painful experience, you feel uh, 
uh, that uh, uh, it destroys your peace, uh, it makes you very uncomfortable, and also you can think of other benefits, other disadvantages, that it uh, increases your pressure, blood pressure, causes um, bleeding gums, and um, uh, you know, increasing your, in your, what you call, sugar uh, in the body, and so forth, numerous other phys physical uh, problems you can experience by when you have uh, hatred. This, this is how you got to think of the disadvantages of having hatred. And then you got to think of, uh, you got to analyze the, the aggregates, asking yourself which of the aggregate do I hate? When you hate, you hate somebody, a person. Ask yourself which aggregate of that person do I hate? the form of the person, or the feeling of the person, or perception of that person, or the thought of that person, or state of mind, or the consciousness of that person, do I hate? Or uh, do I hate the situation that precipitated hatred in me? And then you will see, when you analytically look at the situation, you really will see that you don't hate any one of those single things. You may hate the situation. Then you will see the situation that, is, that precipitated your hatred. Then you will see that situation is not permanent. It is gone, disappeared. And then you know that you, hate, you had hatred at that time, but the situation is gone. Now you don't have any reason to sustain that hatred within yourself. That is another way of dealing with hatred. Uh, one other thing that you have to use to uh, get rid of your hatred is to think of uh, uh, someone who is uh, greater than yourself. In our case, as we always use uh, uh, the instructions of the Buddha, we always think the Buddha is our model one who managed to get rid of his hatred totally, completely, never to return again. There is a very humorous incident in the Buddha's life. Among many, this, in, this incident is very uh, important to remember. When we deal with hatred, it's good to remember that. There was a man whose name was Akkosana. Akkosana simply means one who does not get angry. But this man was an embodiment of anger. You see, normally when people name babies, they don't know what the baby is going to be like. They just give a name. So, a black man may be called Mr. White, and white man may be called Mr. Black. We don't think very much about the color or appearance, we simply give a name. Somebody's mouth may be very stinky, and we may call a sugandha, so that means a pleasant smell. But the mouth is very stinky. And we don't think of the meaning, we simply give a name. 
somebody may be an this person of course uh, happened to be an embodiment of hatred but his parents had given him a name akosana uh, meaning one who does not get angry probably we all know many such names perhaps some of our names also may be like that anyway uh, this man was getting angry for every tiny little thing he gets angry with people who for, with people for not getting angry <laughs> that's why he was angry with the buddha he was angry with the buddha for not getting angry so one day he thought of going and provoking the buddha to see how he looks like when he gets angry and he went and uh, scolded him using all kind of abusive words and calling him names uh, he scolded him he scolded until his vocabulary was exhausted <laughs> buddha listened to him very mindfully and at the end he asked this man sir do you have friends and relatives he said yes of course i have a lot of friends and relatives do you visit them often he said yes i do visit them very often do you carry an any gift to give to them when you visit them surely i never go empty handed to see my friends and suppose you when you give your gift to your friend if that friend does not accept it what would you do he said i take home and enjoy it myself then buddha said similarly you gave me a gift i don't accept it it's all yours you take home and enjoy it yourself you see he turned everything back to him in such a humorous way and he was able to do that because he did not get angry and that's a very beautiful incident in the life of the buddha and we got to remember that when we try to deal with anger this is very beautiful incident to remember when we uh, you know tell stories to uh, stories to children we tell a very simple beautiful story of uh, the story is very simple and good only for children but i like to tell it now for you also Uh, of uh, a quarrelsome fox quarrelsome fox the quarrelsome fox always was wanted to quarrel so one day he found another fox who was very peaceful he did not want to quarrel so this quarrelsome fox told the uh, peaceful fox now what are you doing here sitting not doing nothing come let's fight <laughs> peaceful fox said uh, there's no reason to fight i give you a reason <laughs> he said uh, let me go and bring a rock and put in front of us and i tell you that this rock is mine and you tell that it is yours then i get angry because i broke the rock and then we can fight so he went out and brought a rock and put in front of this peaceful fox and said this rock is mine then the peaceful fox said 
If it is yours, you take it. Quarrel <laughs> is over. You know, we tell the children this story. Uh, if your motive is to be peaceful, you always find a reason to be peaceful. If you always think of not getting angry, you always find a way not to get angry. And therefore, whenever we have anger, we have to think a way of getting rid of it. Or we have to think of a way not to get angry in the in future. Always keep this uh, uh, active, this thought active in our mind. Then when situation arises, we immediately switch on to that thought <laughs> and bring it to our mind and stay uh, calm, quiet. And the last thing we have to do to get rid of our anger is to cultivate loving kindness. Don't do this at first. As soon as you get angry, don't try to cultivate loving kindness, you get more angry. <laughs> your mind is not ready for that. It is burning. You are furious. And um, burning with the, with the flame of anger. And then, when you cultivate loving-kindness, it takes very, very long process of thinking, your hatred will disappear. So when hatred arises, so you deal with it like this and let it go. When it disappears, after sometimes, if it arises in the mind, be mindful of that too. Unerisen hatred arisen in my mind, and then I must deal with it and let it go. When that time it disappears, you realize that my hatred is gone, it is no longer there, I can proceed with, my, with, with the practice of my dhana. As okay. So this evening's uh, talk will be a Dhamma talk rather than a question time. Uh, because I am misgiving the Dhamma talk this morning. And uh, one of the monks reminded me at uh, tea time that this retreat is just uh, gone to Thursday now. So there's only actually a couple more Dhamma talks left. So he said it's about time I got into the Umphi Dhamma talks. <laughs> and the Umphi Dhamma talk this evening is uh, uh, talking about anatta, and I'm going to bring this right now because it's going to bring a few threads together of what I've been talking about so far and I'm also going to, if the talk goes according to the direction I, I want it to go I'm going to bring in how we use the uh, perspective of anatta uh, to develop the deeper stages of meditation and wherever you are in your meditation how this uh, perspective, looking at things through the, the prism of anatta can help develop the meditation into more and more profound and deeper levels. I did say in an earlier talk 
that uh, it's through wisdom power that you get very deep in meditation, not through mere willpower. And a little bit of insight, a little bit of understanding, seeing this process from a different perspective has enormous power to quieten the mind down. And so I wanted to especially emphasize in the latter part of this talk how anatta can be used in this process of meditation. But first of all, just the, the meaning of anatta should be apprehended by us. And it's one of those uh, uh, subjects, or the subject in, in Buddhism, which to many people is very hard to understand and to get your mind around. And that by itself is a good point for insight to arise. Why, in many parts of Buddhism, they seem to be uh, so attractive and so acceptable. But when we come to the teaching of anatta, there's something inside of us which rebels. That is the illusion of self getting uncomfortable. This is stirring up something which is very deep-rooted inside of us. There's something uh, which does not want to even contemplate <coughs> anatta, non-self. And that is uh, a s symptom of the whole problem. The Buddha was very uncompromising when he taught anatta. And it's uh, w one of the reasons why um, people find it a bit difficult because there's no way around uh, when you read the Buddha's teachings, there's no way around coming to the conclusion that uh, there is no one in here. There is no controller. There is no knower. There is no doer. There is no self, no soul, no being. And this uncompromising conclusion which you get from looking at the teachings causes you to actually investigate because so much other teachings of the Buddha seem to be so powerful, so deep, so true, so effective. And this one seems to be the hard one. And it is the hard one because it's only the realization of anatta, of uncovering the illusion of self, that the whole path towards enlightenment revolves. This is the insight, the discovery the understanding which changes one from just being a person wandering around samsara lifetime after lifetime to one who is on the way out of samsara uh, inevitably, certainly, surely uh, bound for Nibbana. It is the crux, the fulcrum of the whole practice and that is difficult to see it's difficult to see because we don't want to see it, but at least we can get a handle on what the Buddha was talking about. Because first of all, that uh, he asked you to uh, not look at anatta from a philosophical point of view, which is one of the big mistakes, we intellectualize it, but to start looking at anatta from the, the practical point of view how it affects our views, perceptions, thoughts. In particular, to look at what do we take to be a self, a soul, a me. 
And this is where we really get to grips with this teaching of anatta and how we use it. Uh, instead of thinking, you know, is there a self or who am I? You say, what do I perceive myself to be? What do I perceive is mine? What do I think is me? What do I think is mine? What do I know or view as me? What do I view as mine? <coughs> and here the Buddha started taking apart this illusion bit by bit. First of all, you've got to identify what this illusion is. The illusion is all your perceptions which assume a self, all your thoughts which conclude as a self, and all your views which think there's somebody there. What is all of this? This is what we call like the, the mirage, because the simile of a mirage is powerful because you know that the mirage, there is some aspect which is real there. A mirage is not just pure imagination. A mirage, there is real light arriving in your eyes. There is an image on the back of your eyes. The point is that the brain or the mind misinterprets what you're seeing and gives it a, 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 an interpretation, gives it a label which it does not deserve. The mirage thinks there's a body of water there, or rather the mind uh, interprets the mirage to be a body of water on the road, when we all know it's just the light being reflected from the sky. <coughs> this is a mirage of the self. Now in order to find out it is a mirage, we've got to actually know what this is that we're misinterpreting. We have to know this experience we are taking to be a self. And it's incredible sometimes that even the ordinary aspects of life which we should really know better are not ours, nothing to do with us. We take to be a self, now, our body. We take to be a self when we're concerned about it. A self has property. A self owns things. Any person in this world has their property, their possessions, their area of control. Because what you own, you have rights over. People think that they have human rights over their body because they think it is their body. People think they have rights over their mind because they think it is their mind. They think they have rights over their thoughts. I can think what I like. Can you? These are things which we think we possess, but first of all our body. Do you possess your body? Do you own it? Is it yours? The older you become, the more you realize just how out of control this body is. How, if there is an owner to this body, it's nature, not you. It gets sick, it hurts, it gets old, it gets better again. And you have just a little influence over this. 
but not that much. However, you can understand that whenever you assume this body to be you or yours, you suffer. As soon as you think that this body which the mosquito is biting belongs to you, you suffer. If you could just imagine this mosquito was biting not your body, but say this microphone in front of me, <coughs> would you worry about it? Would you be concerned about it? Because this microphone isn't yours. If you could actually perceive, even like through imagination, that this arm or this leg which the mosquito was biting wasn't yours, suffering would disappear straight away. The concern would be gone. There would be a sense of peace. Whenever you regard something as not yours, the result is this thing we call letting go. What is the opposite of letting go? It is called owning. I won't call it controlling, I'll call it owning now. Because the owning always assumes an owner. And so we look at what we own, what we possess, or what rather we think we possess. <coughs> and this is a way of accessing the teaching of anatta, using the Buddha's teaching, which I mentioned earlier, that if there's a self, a soul, a me, there'll be things which belong to me. If there's things which belong to me, if there's, there's possessions, there has to be an owner. These two go together. So you look for the teaching of anatta, just what you think you own. What do you own in this world? Do you own your body? If you do, you suffer. If you think you own your body, you'll be attached to it. If you think you own the body, you will not be able to let it go. And I've seen many people in that predicament, close to death, in pain, not willing to let their body go. And sometimes it's very sad to see a person thrashing about in just the last few moments of their life, struggling for the breath, struggling for a comfortable position, struggling to stop death happening. And even though they're in pain, they'd rather have that pain and discomfort than have death. Why is that? It's attachment to their body. Why are they attached to their body? It's because they think it's theirs. They can't let it go. It's like a child with a little teddy bear or doll and someone's trying to take it from you. No, leave it's mine. You can't have it. And you won't let that teddy bear or little doll go. You can see that in a child and you know that the child's being stupid. But this little doll, this little teddy bear of a body we carry around with us, when nature takes it back, do you scream? Do you cry? No, no, no. I'm too young to die. I've got too many things to do. Not yet, tomorrow maybe, but not today. Not now. 
This is what we're talking about with attachment. And the cause of this is this mirage of self and soul, this mirage of ownership. You can actually see this happening in certain moments of your life when the body is threatened by sickness, by disease, or even just by simple pain. When there's a pain in the legs when you're meditating, what is the problem? What is the real problem? Is it the pain, or is it because you think it's my pain? Why can't you let go of the pain? Why can't you just go to the breath and just stay with the breath? If you look closely, you'll, think, you'll know that you'll go to that which concerns you, which you think is your business, which you think is what, you, what you're supposed to be doing. You go to that which is your assumed responsibility, that which you own or think you own. You go to the, the pain in your legs because you think it's your legs. It's your pain. So you have to do something about it. If you could <coughs> realize at that point, or do a little imagination, not self, this is not mine. It's nothing to do with me. It's not my concern. Let the body look after the pain. I look after the breath, or look after the nimitta, look after the mind. You could do it then. When you understand you don't own those things, only then can you let them go. Attachment is born by the illusion of ownership. You try that the next time you have an irritation, a distraction caused by pain in the body. Just for a moment, just to let go of the body, Understand you don't own this and it belongs to nature and you'll find the disturbance of the pain will vanish and you'll be free to go back to the, the breath or the nimitta or into deep samadhi. You won't be concerned with the body because you're not regarding it as yours. And this particular <coughs> way of looking at the body becomes extremely important the deeper you go in meditation. Because there comes a time, and this is a time when the nimitta arises, when you're about to leave the body completely. And with it you're leaving the five external senses. And so many meditators experience fear at this point. Because one of the, the upikalesas, one of the great hindrances, to attaining the jhanas. You can get to the nimitta, but you can't go in. You can't sort of absorb into it. There's some sort of something holding you back, some fear, some inability to let go. And it's good to understand what you can't let go of and why. This is where the insight starts to uncover deep-seated attachments, deep-seated deep illusions which cause those attachments. If you 
get to that point many times and investigate that, you'll find that what you're afraid of letting go of is this body and these instruments of the five senses which give us a sense of protection and security about the <coughs> uh, longevity and protection of the body. It's as if, but if sight disappears, sound disappears, hearing disappears, smell, taste, and especially physical feelings disappear, we're not quite sure what will happen to this body. As if all of the, the guards to the safety of this body go to sleep. As if we've got no, no guards on our house, no alarms, no protection. We're afraid that somebody might go in and steal something or destroy our, our, our whole house. We can't let go because we're worried about the safety of that which we left behind. We're worried about letting go of the body. The only way you can pass that hurdle, or the usual way you can let pass that hurdle, there's another way of just being so fascinated by the nimitta you don't really realize what you're letting go of. But the very good way of letting of get passing that hurdle is to realize at that point that what you're letting go of has nothing to do with you. The body is not yours. The senses are not yours. You don't own them. You're not part of them. These are just something which you take up and use, which you can put back down again. You feel free to abandon the body only when you realize in a very deep level it's not yours. So you at that stage in the meditation, a little bit of anatta, a little bit of non-self, does wonders <coughs> for freeing you to go into deep jhanas. You look at that body, you can let it go. It's quite safe. It's not yours anyway. It doesn't matter if it does die in jhana. And let go of all these senses. You realize they're nothing to do with you. Not your business. Leave it alone. Let it go. And this control which comes up, the control which is always trying to control what? Especially control the body. Let that go. Give it away. It's not yours. Nothing to do with you. And the control which is trying to control your mind. Trying to force it into jhanas. Trying to nudge it into jhanas. Trying to mold it this way and that way so jhanas will happen nothing to do with you. Let go. One of the great monks in Thailand who's been to visit here a few times, he says when he meditates he just does nothing. Just sits there and does nothing. And goes into deep jhanas. He's a very great meditator and that's the way he meditates. He just gives up. Gives up the doer. And the only way you can do that is because this doesn't belong to him. Why am I doing something which doesn't belong to me? It's like mowing someone else's garden on a Saturday afternoon. What are you doing that for? Let them mow their own garden. <coughs> so this is the anatta which actually starts to propel you into the jhanas. 
And the Buddha actually said again and again when he started talking about not just looking at the body as non-self, but look at some of the senses. He started, he said very clearly, it's in the Anatta Lakana Sutta, the second teaching which he gave. Sort of, what you see isn't yours. The seeing isn't yours. Sight consciousness isn't yours. And it's not you. He said like hearing, what you hear, just hearing consciousness is not you. Smelling, tasting, touching, what the feelings in your body, they're not you. The feeling organ, the body is not yours. Feeling consciousness is not yours. Mind objects aren't yours. The mind consciousness isn't yours. The mind isn't yours. He actually said that very carefully in order for people to understand that these senses are part of nature and because of the nature of illusion that the function of a mirage we mistake these things to be something that they're not and especially the five external senses we are attached to these which is why we can't let them go we take them to be ours my sight, my hearing, my smell, my taste, my physical touch. Because we take them to be ours, because we think we own them, we are concerned with them. Why is it that during meditation we get disturbed by sounds outside? Have you ever investigated that? The traffic outside? the sound of someone banging, or the lawnmower going, or a helicopter going overhead. Why do they disturb us? What's the point of listening to those sounds? What do we get out of it? Why do we do it? The reason why we do it <coughs> is because we think that sound is ours and we're scared of letting it go. It's as if that if we don't attend to sound it will disappear once and for all, forever. We're so used to this, we've grown up with it. It's like a good friend, once they go, we think we've lost something. How many times when people have been together for many years, when one person dies and gets cremated, the other person always thinks there's something missing there somewhere, they don't feel comfortable. Isn't it the same? that we're so used to these five senses that when one disappears I mean really disappears it's not quite right we turn it on again deliberately we want to hear anything rather than have silence or rather than have no, no um, sound at all even with the body we've grown up with these feelings in the body we're used to them and when any, all these feelings disappear it can feel so weird sometimes that we're not quite used to this as if there's something missing somewhere we get afraid our comfort um, blankets are taken away and we just snatch them back again with these five senses if you realize these are nothing to do with, with you sound becomes just like a telephone ringing it's somebody else's call 
not yours, nothing to do with you. When the body starts to itch, it's a message with someone else's name on it, not yours, so you don't open the envelope. You just don't communicate with that which doesn't belong to you, which is not your concern. If you could do that, understanding the Buddha's teachings of anatta with his five external senses, it's so easy to let them go, to turn them off, to not to pick them up. And if you can do that, the jhana becomes just so easy. The burden with jhana is the mosquitoes biting you, the sound disturbing you, the pain in the knees, and all the thinking about that. That's what disturbs you. If you can let go of the body, abandon the body, jhana become easy. Remember that somebody brought this question up in the question time a few days ago about that Christian monk who was torturing his body by whipping himself until the five senses got just so unpleasant that he turned them off and gave them away. That's one way of abandoning the five senses, make them just so unpleasant you just can't stand them any longer and you chuck them away. But that's the hard way. The easy way is to realize that these things aren't yours, don't belong to you. When you can do that, <coughs> the meditation just becomes so easy. You can let go of these things because you realize they aren't yours. So this is the way we can actually use uh, the understanding of non-self to look at the five external senses and to let them go. When we go to the world of the mind, then that is much harder to let go because we have more attachment to the world of the mind than even to the world of the body and its five external senses. In particular, we have this thing which we call thought. Why is thought so hard to give up? Again, because we think it's me thinking, this my thoughts. If you could actually look upon thoughts as being irrelevant chatter, if you could imagine that all this thought is like coming from this little demon inside of you, who's managed to creep in through your ear hole when you were asleep, and is getting this stupid conversation going on with another demon who's gone in your, your other ear hole at night and they're having this conversation with each other. It's completely stupid, but realize it's not, not yours. Because there's two little devils inside your head speaking with one another. Even that little imagination should be enough to realize this is not your thoughts, it's not your conversation, it's nothing to do with you. And that way you just don't listen to it. You don't give it importance you realize it's not your responsibility. You don't need to listen to that commentary. You can let it go. Only when you realize it's not yours. With that commentary, the inner commentary, is what we call the doer. Because if you listen to that commentary, just so often it's giving 
advice, giving criticism, very rarely gives praise, but sometimes it does that as well. It always gives orders. This is what we're talking about, the doer. This is how the doer manifests. This is the, the, uh, the, the orders, the speech. This is how the, the doer governs you. You think something and then you follow those thoughts. An order is given and you, you do that. And this doer, this doer, this is what we call will, choice. You can actually see it happening. Not will and choice as an idea, but will and choice as an experience which you can view happening in your mind. You can actually see the mind moving into thought and from that thought sort of an action following very often. This is how there's a governing of your actions of body and speech and mind. This is how volition appears to you. You can actually see it happening and that's what I was saying is conditioned. That's what I was saying you can see the causes for. Two little demons have called in your ears. <laughs> Not you. Nothing to do with you. Not coming from a self. Not coming from a me. In particular, nothing belonging to me. This is not your orders. These are words, thoughts, ideas, completely conditioned. Why do you think those thoughts and not other thoughts? Why do you do these things and not other things? If you look very closely, you can see the connections, how one thought leads to another, how inclinations sort of lead to another. In particular, the Buddha actually taught to really understand how thinking works and how thinking especially is, is full of delusion. He taught these uh, whippalazas, these it's the working of delusion. It's the, the physics of it. The mechanics of it. Where does thought come from? And you start to, if you look carefully, that thought is built up of your perceptions. For example, whenever you have your, your lunch, if you perceive something to be delicious, and actually think, oh, that's really nice, I'll have some more of that. Whatever you perceive, if you perceive in a certain way, the thought follows on from that. And it gives the, the thoughts, build up the views. That this is delicious. Or Bianca's a good cook. Or, you know, really get good food in this place. Your views are built up by the thoughts, which are built up by the perceptions. And where do the perceptions come from? You perceive according to your views. I often give a story of when I was a young teenager and went into a pub in London for my first pint of beer, the British beer. Vastly underage, but that didn't really matter. That was just uh, a dare with your mates. 
and drinking that first uh, sip of beer and just being completely taken aback at how dreadful it tasted. You know, the, the actual experience was that this was really an awful thing, it was so bitter and it wasn't to my taste at all. But the view, the current view amongst all of my friends and most of society was this was something delicious. So that first perception came up and by the time I'd finished that beer, I'd changed it completely because I wanted it to taste nice. It did taste nice. And I developed a, a love of British beer. And we spent a lot of money and a lot of time drinking it. And you can see what happens there. Because of your view that this must be delicious, it becomes delicious. And your perceptions follow accordingly. And from your perceptions you build up the thoughts. And because of your thoughts you reinforce the views. This is how delusion happens and keeps us in this uh, circle which we find it so hard to get out of. We look at our thoughts, we think they're true because they fit our perceptions and they fit our views. Of course they do because they're made out of this. Your views create your perceptions, your perceptions build your thoughts, your thoughts justify your views. And there you go on with more perceptions, thoughts and views, each supporting each other, justifying one another. You never can see the fallacy of that. Only when you can actually start to stop those thoughts, to realize this is just a part of nature, not trusting them, not thinking they're real, especially not thinking they're yours. To be able to let go of them by knowing that this is a doer which you can abandon. Not only the doer, because the doer is one of the, the biggest um, hurdles to overcome both in meditation and in, in insight practice. And many of you just know how hard it is to find a way of, of letting go of this doer. See if you can practice a little imaginary suggesting just for a few moments of non-self, not mine, that this thing, the doer, which is manifesting as your thought, has nothing to do with me, not mine, not my business. And you find it's much easier to let go of when you don't own it, when it's not your responsibility, you don't mind people taking away. Somebody, uh, if you heard like a thief break into the car park and steal a car, if you went out there and find, oh, it's not my car, would you be feel the same as if you went out there and find it was your car? You can see how ownership causes the problems. We don't allow things to, to be to disappear. We can't let go of them when we think we really own them, that they're mine. So if you do a little bit of anatta practice here, it's called anatta sanya, just a perception of non-self, then you find that 
it's easy to let go of the thinking, easy to let go of the thoughts. Also, anatta means that there is no one in here, so you don't do the meditation. How can you do the meditation? Who can do the meditation? This meditation just becomes a natural process. Not you doing it, but meditation happens when you let go of you. When you allow things to disappear and to get quiet. When you, for a moment, actually practice anatta towards the doer. You allow the meditation to be done by non-self rather than to coming from a self, a doer, my meditation, me doing it. The other place where the illusion of self lies is, is in the knower. And again we think that uh, consciousness is us. I am the one who is conscious. I am the one who is experiencing all of this. This consciousness belongs to me. Which is also why that if one really thinks the consciousness is yours and you own it, you like to keep as much consciousness as you can. In other words, you like to experience as much as you can in this world. Which is basically the way of the world. The way of meditation is actually letting go of all that area of consciousness, all those experiences which you can uh, be indulging in this nine days. And instead just limiting yourself to a very small area of all possible conscious experience. Just the breath. Just this moment. No past, no future. It's interesting what happens when you let go of a lot of the pasture of consciousness and you just limit it in just to a small paddock. Usually consciousness can just uh, go anywhere. You can be conscious of just any, anything. Go experience <coughs> all the delights, all of the, the pleasures in the world. But here you're putting the consciousness in a very small pasture. And what happens when you've let go of so much pasture for your consciousness and you say, I'm just going to be conscious of the breath, I'm just going to be conscious of the present moment. All these other possibilities I'm going to renounce. And actually you find there is freedom. There is peace, there is some happiness. Why is that? What's going on? You start to realize that all these other areas, they don't really belong to you, nothing to do with you. Give them away. And you find the more you can give up consciousness, the more you can let go of consciousness. Let go of the consciousness of sight, sound, smells, tastes and touches. And things get very peaceful. Things get very nice. Things get very free. It's because that we uh, think that consciousness is somehow ours we're unable to let it go. We just still want to be alive, we want to hear, we want to think. Because deep down, that we don't want anyone to take it away from us. 
we think it's ours, we possess it, we own it, and we're not willing to let it go. If you think that consciousness is yours, then it's just so hard to let it go. At the very least, we can let go of the consciousness of the external five senses. And let's keep a little bit of consciousness of the mind. At least we're being conscious of something. But bit by bit, when one develops jhanas, one lets go of more of the pasture where consciousness usually lives. And little by little, we let go of consciousness itself. We can only enter into that final jhana of cessation, because it's cessation of consciousness. We can even let go of the last vestige of consciousness, only when we understand that this consciousness it isn't us, doesn't belong to us. Only there we can let it go. People are afraid to let go of consciousness when you think it's yours. So this is actually how we can use this anatta understanding. Just use it for a few moments, just look at the world through anatta, just as an experiment, and see what happens. Imagine you don't own anything. Imagine this body isn't yours. Imagine these five senses aren't yours. Imagine the doer isn't yours. Imagine consciousness isn't yours. And see what happens. This way you're testing out, through your experience, the teaching of anatta. You're not just thinking about it, you're not just analyzing it, you're not just uh, theorizing about it. You're finding out what happens if you view the world through anatta. And if you can actually do this, you find the results start to, uh, start to come. You start to see it's a, it's a very productive way at looking at the world, looking at meditation, looking at life. It starts to, to come together, this meditation. And also, that when you find that actually things work in practice, it gives you an incentive, or rather gives you uh, a courage to say, this might actually have something to do with the truth. This might actually be real. But what is true tends to work. What is false usually tends not to work at all. And you start to question some of these assumptions you have. You start to look at these assumptions you have. And you start to challenge those assumptions. As first of all, you've got to see that those are assumptions, like ways which we've uh, been brought up, being conditioned to to view the world, to you know, to view the consciousness as being mine, to view the, the the doer as being me. And what I'm saying is to challenge that by just looking at it from a different perspective. What happens also in this meditation? Not only does the the practice of anatasanya, non-self, actually make the the meditation more deep, more powerful, when you just try it out just for a few moments. Not only does it make it more powerful, but it actually produces what belongs to my body. 
How can you have a body without an arm? Well, there it is. That's really weird. If you see your arm just coming and going, coming and going, it becomes quite clear it doesn't belong to you. If you see like your leg coming and going, that doesn't belong to you. If you see the doer disappearing for long periods of time, it becomes just as obvious as the nose on the front of your face. This thing doesn't belong to you. You can exist without it. And actually, you exist much happier without it. Without a doer. When I'm talking about a doer, I'm talking about all manifestations of will, choice, decision-making, judging. All of that disappears in these states. It's the simile I usually give for these jhanas. It's like a person, or like a, a tadpole, born in the water. A tadpole born in the water, grown up in the water, only knows water. Actually, it doesn't know very much about water, because it's just too close. It's got nothing to compare it with. And thinks that's the whole world. It's only when the tadpole grows up and leaves that water, becomes a frog and goes to dry land. He's got that extra data to the world. And it's only when you go to dry land that you know what wet means. It's only when you can actually get out of the doer and the doer disappears that you know what the doer was. That you know what it truly is. It's just water. It's not the whole world. It's just part of nature. It's not your essential being. So once you ex uh, enter a jhana and experience the, uh, the jhanas and come out afterwards, just usually they're so strong experience, so marvelous, powerful experiences that most people they just get off, wow, that was really nice, wow, that's really nice. But in Buddhism we also teach not just to indulge in the, the pleasure of uh, having attained these states, but also to review them, look back upon them, <coughs> investigate them. What was that? Powerful experiences are very easy to remember. You can recall them just so well. And you look back and see what was strange about that, what was enjoyable about that. And one thing you look back on is to see that the doer has completely gone. What does that actually mean? If you look back upon that enough times, you come to the insight inevitably. You have to, I can't see how you can miss it. That a great part of you, a great chunk, which you thought was you, which you took to be a self, which you assumed to be a self, was a great mistake. You just summed it up all wrong. You've made an assumption without all the evidence, and now the evidence is here. You can't keep that assumption again. Just like, you know, people always used to think that the world was flat. It's obvious, isn't it, the world is flat? Just go and look outside. It's flat. You can even put a spirit level on it. There, it's flat. And actually, for, for most people, sort of, you know, that's, that's obvious. The world is round takes a jump of perception, especially if somehow you can leave the world and go up in a, a rocket or a spaceship. 
and you can actually see the world is round. The same with the doer being a self. Right down here, unenlightened human beings, it's just so obvious the doer is a self, that I am doing these things, that I am choosing. We make that assumption all the time. It's only if we can somehow get apart, away, separated from this, get a perspective on it, see the doer disappear. Only then it become very clear that the doer has nothing to, to do with the self. The doer has gone. When existence is still there, you're still conscious. still feels like you there. But the doer has gone. Consciousness has remained. Imagine what it's like if you actually could see this and understand this and accept this. It completely changes your perspective on, on willpower, on choosing, on doing, on desiring, on craving. What is craving anyway but another type of doing? If you can actually see this, the doer is not self. A lot of craving disappears. Also, the other part which one assumes to be a self is just experiencing consciousness. Even though we, if we attain to at least a first jhana, we can actually experience for ourselves the doer ceasing, there's still like a conscious experience there. You want to still fully awake and it's still knowing. But little by little that knowing disappears. When a, a big, first of all, if you can see the doer as non-self, then at least you can have some confidence or you can have some, um, it's very suggestive, uh, <coughs> it's a suggestion which makes a lot of, uh, which is possible, but the knower maybe is not you either. And as you, if you can develop another jhana at least, you see a whole heap of knowing disappearing. As the jhanas get more and more refined, a whole uh, chunk of consciousness disappearing then again you can get an idea, an inkling that consciousness isn't you. But not only that, because uh, in the Dhamma, in Buddhism, the Buddha sort of described consciousness as actually what it actually is in terms of the six senses and described that each of these senses has got a completely different type of consciousness to it. Sight consciousness you know, seeing is not the same as hearing. It's not the same as smelling, tasting, touching, or mind consciousness. 